It's no surprise that transfer pricing has come under scrutiny, but nothing will compare to fiscal year 2020, and that's putting it mildly. It's more imperative than ever that M&Es know what it takes to stay compliant, even in the most turbulent circumstances. Welcome, everyone. I'm Matthew DeMello, host of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. On today's show, we have Chief Economist here at Cross-Border, Mimi Song, offering her expert strategies from her latest article in Treasury and Risk, Transfer Pricing Documentation for 2021, which of course means fiscal year 2020. And in speaking of being so credentialed, you get to do things like write in academic journals about your area of expertise. You can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words throughout the course of today's show. Send all three code words to the Fiona show at xbs.ai. Now, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Compromise, it's essential in parenting, marriage, and even pet ownership. It's also finding its way into transfer pricing. The Biden administration recently proposed a compromise for Pillar 1. The plan would limit the number of MEs subject to Pillar 1 to 100, so long as they reach profit margin and revenue thresholds. It would also include changes to Pillar 1, Amount A, which deals with allocation of group profits. The U.S. plan wants Amount A to be a multinational, one-size-fits-all, instead of just applying to M&Es that conduct consumer-facing business or sell automated digital services. In addition, the U.S. is open to flexible nexus thresholds to allow Pillar 1 tax to spill over into developing countries. Pillar 1 has become a seesaw of compromise and proposals in response to the OECD Secretariat's blueprint published in October 2020. The OECD blueprint proposed a scope of 2,300 MNEs with a 750 million euros global revenue threshold. Inclusive framework countries are aiming to cross the consensus finish line by mid-2021. And finally, the war over Pillar 1 will be won. Sharing is caring. The OECD announced that 12 tax havens shared details about business entity activity. With whom do you ask? This is where it gets interesting. The information was presented to the country in which the beneficial owner or parent entity is a tax resident. The requirements are derived from the OECD's Forum on Harmful Tax Practices and mandate that information be reported about entities located in low or no tax jurisdictions that earn income from mobile activities or intangible property. So who makes the list? Anguilla, the Bahamas, Bahrain, Barbados, Bermuda, British Virgin Islands, the Cayman Islands, Guernsey, the Isle of Man, Jersey, and the Turks and Caicos Islands. Essentially, everywhere you'd want a vacation. Pascal St. Amans, director of the OECD Center for Tax Policy and Administration, considers it, quote, good news for tax administrations around the world, unquote, as it provides a more objective look into what's happening in low tax jurisdictions. Another day, another dollar, or in this case, another jurisdiction, another guidance. Singapore's latest guidance tackles centralized activities in MEs. The new e tax guide, titled Transfer Pricing Guidelines Special Topic Centralized Activities in Multinational Enterprise Groups, ooh, rolls off the tongue, is a supplement to the country's transfer pricing guidelines that went into effect February 2018. 
The tax roadmap addresses the economic value of centralized activities performed by the Singapore headquarters for the ME Group and how to price centralized activities, specifically related party transactions and appropriate transfer pricing methods. With so many MEs calling Singapore home, the guidance proves beneficial in more ways than one. It reminds taxpayers to examine existing transfer pricing policies along with service transaction analyses and documentation. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Mimi, congratulations on this article. And that's, again, transfer pricing documentation for 2021 in Treasury and Risk. And of course, by that, we're talking about fiscal year 2020. You've been in the transfer pricing arena for more than 20 years. What was it like seeing the pandemic from a transfer pricing perspective? It's actually really quite interesting, right? I mean, you know, no one wants to see a pandemic happen. So, so let's just start there. It's, 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 it's a crazy environment for everyone around the world, but it's a global phenomenon. And so from a transfer pricing perspective, the question becomes, have all of these different jurisdictions been impacted similarly because of the pandemic? And this is where complexities start to rear their ugly head, if you will, right? Because in this current environment, the pandemic hasn't impacted every country similarly. The governments have all responded differently, right? And we've, we've touched upon this before, but it's fascinating to see how this is going to play out when we talk about sort of this global interconnected supply chain, right, and society. I mean, what we're seeing here from a multinational perspective is the ability to target customers, consumers, vendors in a variety of different jurisdictions, right? And because of that ability to reach so many different people in so many different countries around the world, this is why the implications of the pandemic and, and the challenges that we're facing become even more complex, right? We're already talking about a very complex digital economy and then layer onto that the complexity associated with impacts to the supply chain and the value chain because of the pandemic environment, right? And, and government responses to that and implications of that. It's just, it's an exciting time from a transfer pricing perspective and exciting not in the yay, everyone's going on a roller coaster. It's super exciting. <laughs> More so in the you're at the top of the demon drop and you're like, 
that feeling in the pit of your stomach where you're yes. like, oh my yes. gosh, I, I'm, you don't know what to I am expect. famously <laughs> not a big fan of the drop rides at, 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 yeah. at amusement parks. So <laughs> this is particularly nauseating for me. I'm kidding. Anyway, what kinds of questions, concerns have you heard from clients regarding the pandemic? I think first and foremost, many of the customers that we speak with, they were concerned about, do we need to change our transfer pricing policies as a result of the pandemic? It's, is there something we should be doing, right? That's always the biggest question in everyone's minds. You know, what should we be doing? How should we be responding as it pertains to these intercompany dealings? Because the intercompany transactions are not necessarily stopping altogether. They're perhaps taking on a different shape. Perhaps the volumes had been impacted, right. right? Or maybe there's another layer that's introduced within to the within the vertical supply chain of that company. So people's questions of what should we be doing? How should we be responding? Should we continue to pay certain levels of remuneration based on the pre-existing transfer pricing policies? Those are all the types of questions that were being raised from our clients during during this pandemic. That's right, of course. And what is happening now in pre-COVID terms of transfer pricing documentation? How has the landscape changed? Well, yeah, I, I think that's a that's a good question, Matt, because let's take the pandemic out of the equation, right? Because we're already talking about a landscape where documentation requirements had become that much more rigid more and more jurisdictions were incorporating or adopting the OECD BEPS Action 13 recommendations, if you will, or guidelines. Each of these different jurisdictions have been layering on additional complexities in terms of the documentation requirements, right, to meet what they're looking for on a localized basis. And, and you know, I, I say this all the time. It's always, well, what was the intention of the OECD BEPS Action Plan? And I'll tell you that a lot of people who know me personally, they think of me as the eternal optimist, right? So <laughs> I like to think of myself as a realist, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> they think of me as the eternal optimist. And why do I mention that? I mention that because when the OECD came out with the BEPS Action Plan, and especially BEPS Action 13, my initial thought of, wow, this is great. The OECD is trying to make it easier for multinationals to comply with documentation requirements. They're really trying to set this framework to make all the different requirements consistent so that taxpayers only have to do this once. But the reality, right? The reality is that each of the countries may have started at that point, but ultimately, the intention of the OECD BEPS action plan wasn't with the mindset of the taxpayer in mind. It was with the mindset of the tax authority being able to better audit the taxpayer who, from the mindset of many of these governments, were manipulating the transfer pricing framework and, and moving profits to lower tax jurisdictions and taking advantage of all these tax arbitrage opportunities. That's the real reason why the BEPS action plan has taken off and been adopted because it was really in the best interest of the governments and their ability to understand how multinationals were, and I use this word from their perspective, manipulating 
the tax situation. Right. right? And in what ways do country-specific documentation requirements vary? So in each of these different jurisdictions, the, the complexity not only comes from the type of information that they're looking for, you know, the, the, the additional components like China looking at location savings advantages, which was even pre-BEPS, but a difference nonetheless. And then having, you know, information related to management structures and things of that nature. But even the economic analysis goes beyond that, right? And so India looking at a 35th to 65th percentile, other jurisdictions like Canada looking at a single year analysis versus a multi-year analysis, which in Australia, they want to see five years versus three years, right? Every single jurisdiction is thinking that the way that they want to see the application of the arms length principle is better suited by looking at, you know, data points across a certain specified period of time. They're not agreeing to what that specified period of time is. And that's part of the challenge, right? Of course. The thresholds are different. What do they consider material? And I always think, you know, my, my perspective on materiality and the thresholds at the end of the day is... Governments may impose certain thresholds to provide a little bit of leniency to the taxpayer, right? To say, okay, if you don't have over a million dollars of intercompany transactions, fine. You're not required to put together this more formalistic transfer pricing documentation. But the truth of the matter is they can still audit that and adjust it and challenge it. And you still have to be able to prove that those intercompany transactions were conducted at arm's length because if you if you can't, they can still adjust you. Now, now because of the thresholds, they're not going to penalize you and add insult to injury, but the risk of audit still remains, right? So the threshold, it's there, but it's sort of like a very thin veil of a facade that, oh, well, I don't have to do anything here. And people tend to rely on that a lot more as a reason not to have any documentation or analysis prepared. But at the end of the day, the analysis should still be prepared because the burden of proof is on you as the taxpayer, right? Now, going beyond that, we talk about this all the time, benchmarking, right? Localized benchmarks versus regional benchmarks versus global benchmarks. The idea here these days is that each of these foreign jurisdictions, they want local benchmarks. Not only do they want local benchmarks, if you have to expand the region, right, because there are not enough local benchmarks with a sufficient amount of data or with sufficient level of independence, if you will, they even have preferences of what type of region would be acceptable, right? So if you're looking for, you know, comparables, for example, in Denmark, they're not going to want you to expand Danish comparables all the way to everybody in Europe, Right. Right. They actually want to limit it perhaps to the Nordic regions. And it's all about control. It's all about trying to control for these various characteristics of potentially comparable companies in order to make sure that you're feeling confident about profitability that's being analyzed, right? And then I'm going to, you know, there's, there's so many differences, right? So sorry (laughs) (laughs) for keep going on, but you know, languages, Right. right? Languages, deadlines. It's no surprise that there are various jurisdictions out there that have a preference for documentation in local language. They're not all going to accept English. They're not all going to accept French. They're not all going to accept, you know, Chinese. 
right? But they want it in their local language because the world, they don't all speak one language, unfortunately. And they want to be able to make sure that they clearly understand the facts and circumstances as it pertains to the the business activities. And, um, you know, this is why the language barriers become, become a, a problem. And so they're, they're mandating in many jurisdictions for the documentation to be in the local language. In interrupting very briefly for our first CPE code word, and that code word is treasury. Keeping it easy this episode. Again, our first CPE code word is treasury. Back to our conversation. And what will set 2021 apart in terms of transfer pricing, documentation, preparation, review, and compliance? I would say, first and foremost, when we think about the 2021 compliance year, right? The year that we're going to be documenting is the pandemic year, which is companies who had fiscal years ending 12-31-2020 as an example, or around that time. That's the majority of the case. And so every company out there is probably going to have some sort of explanation of how the pandemic had impacted their profitability especially as it pertains to intercompany transactions. And that's going to be because it's going to be both sides, by the way. It's going to be because in some situations, companies might have had to tweak their transfer pricing policy in the middle of the year in response to the pandemic. Other companies may not have changed their policies, so they're still going to see a similar level of remuneration, but it's going to have an adverse reaction to at least one side of the transaction, perhaps, right? And then in other situations, there are companies who perhaps have to justify higher rates of return, especially, for example, those companies that might have been seeing an increased level of demand for manufacturing PPE, right? It's an easy example to say there was much higher demand, which could have driven up the potential profits for those organizations. And if that's the case, now company has to justify how those excess profits are then split or shared, if at all, right, between the various related parties. And and that goes back to the value chain analysis. So there are all these different types of scenarios, but I can guarantee you that every company out there, they're probably going to have to make some sort of accommodation from a qualitative perspective about how the pandemic had impacted their business and about how they had to respond accordingly. Right. Right. And in your article, you mentioned that tax administrations will be exercising a whole new level of vigilance. How has the pandemic elevated scrutiny and what will that look like? Well, I think ultimately every government out there has seen a decrease in the tax revenue. Right. That's consistent across the board. I think part of that is also that they're going to see budget deficits because of the government assistance programs. And so when you see things of that nature, and, and while I personally haven't been through a pandemic situation before as a transfer pricing professional, what I have been through is a recessionary period, right, where many different countries have been through a recession. And in response to that, governments have had to adjust their monetary and fiscal policies to be able to respond and, and control the, the economic environment, if you will. And so what that does, though, is it creates an environment where multinationals have then have to respond accordingly, have to adjust accordingly, right? And so when we see 
and, and by the way, record all those data points properly, right? So government relief programs, how is that being recorded in the books right. and records? Uh, are they going to have to repay the PPP loans? And in some many cases, they're, they're not, right? And those are going to be, how should that be taken into consideration when you're thinking about a tax revenue perspective, right? So at the end of the day, right, I think the pandemic has created a lot of complexity in terms of companies' profitability, their ability to operate within their particular environment, government assistance programs, government lockdown mandates, right? all of those issues are going to have to be addressed properly. And so, and then tax authorities are going to want to see exactly how they can help shore up these deficits. And they're going to want to make sure that a taxpayer is telling their full story, right? And highlighting how much aid or assistance they might have been receiving in the past in order to make sure that they're still paying their fair share of taxable income. Because that's what it is. At the end of the day, the arm's length principle and the application of the arm's length principle, it's simple. It's, are these multinationals paying their fair share of taxes in every jurisdiction around the world? Or on a global basis, right? Holistically speaking. And now clearly lots of debate about what constitutes fair share, but at the end of the day, that's, that's really what these governments want to achieve. So the documentation and the analyses that multinationals are going to have to do, it's going to have to support the application of the arm's length principle across all the various intercompany transactions that they continue to enter into over the past year. And do you think this level of vigilance will set the precedent for years to come even after the pandemic is over? I definitely think so. I mean, there's there's a hangover effect, right, Matt? Mm. It's so the governments and the, the the increased amount of audits and scrutiny, it's only going to help for a short period of time. But if they're successful at it, by the way, right, if tax authorities are successfully able to target multinationals, audit them, find adjustments, apply penalties, shore up some of that tax deficit, they're going to want to continue to do that, right? They're going to say, hey, this is working. Let's continue to go down this road to ensure that tax payers understand this is not an area that we're giving up on. This is not a one and done situation. This is ongoing, right? I mean, the pandemic itself, it just throws on a layer of complexity. But I, I think this is the direction that the tax authorities have been moving on the whole time. This just helps to accelerate or fuel their desire to identify those opportunities where multinationals have been considered manipulative, right? Right. I, I think I think that's this is not going away. In your article, one of your strategies for demonstrating compliance in 2020 is to produce localized documentation. What are some of the problem areas MEs face when doing this and how can they overcome them? Well, you know, we talked about this earlier when we were talking about all the different jurisdictions having different requirements, right? You cannot just take one generic report and then say, this applies to every single situation because it never quite does, right? And even in a situation where a company might have what's called a principal model or a hub and spoke model, that type of model and business model, it is set up 
met so that companies can have sort of this consistent framework in all these various jurisdictions. But the problem is that, you know, let's say that under that model, you set up a limited risk distributor in Poland, you set up a limited risk distributor in Korea, you set up a limited risk distributor in Australia. And the challenge is that that model was supposed to make it easier for the taxpayer to control their transfer pricing framework. All of those different operations were set up to operate similarly, but each of those different tax authorities that I just mentioned, Poland, Korea, and Australia, they're sticklers for wanting to see local comparables. And what does that do? It creates complexity. You have to identify the right types of localized benchmarks. Uh, you have to understand whether or not you can control for certain factors. You're gonna have to look at the data across different years, right? So you're gonna have different data sets and things of that nature. And so it creates a lot of problems for a multinational who thought that that type of model could create a lot of simplicity. And it does, don't get me wrong. It does create simplicity, at least from an internal management perspective and from a growth perspective, but from a compliance perspective, especially transfer pricing compliance in the current environment, having the documentation for Poland is not going to be sufficient to meet the requirements for Korea, which is not going to be sufficient for meeting the requirements for Australia. Why will the functional analysis play such a particularly imperative role in fiscal year 2020? So remember, let's 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 backtrack. What is this functional analysis that we talk about, right? <laughs> it's 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 all about defining, you know, what functions are being performed by which entities involved in that intercompany transaction, what risks are being assumed, and what assets are being deployed. Right? And so that's what a functional analysis is. Those are, it's made up of those various components. And so during COVID, during this last year, the challenge or the issue was that companies had to change and modify the supply chain. And what does that do? Well, it, it impacts the type of functions that companies are able to perform in each of these different jurisdictions, right? So manufacturing companies in China, as an example, they were the first to be impacted by COVID where facilities were shut down and there were quarantine mandates. And so all of a sudden companies had to shift their operations and perhaps expand their manufacturing operations in the UK, just as an example, if they had a footprint there already, right? And so that shifts that type of responsibility between China and the UK. And all of a sudden the UK is going to now take an additional layer of logistics perhaps to handle all the manufacturing activities that were previously being handled by China. And then perhaps that flips again when China was one of the first jurisdictions to be able to control if if you can, you know, interpret it that way as, as they, they were able to at least control the, the flow of the virus, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they were able to open up a little bit better. And so they were the one of the first jurisdictions to open up when everywhere else was closed. And all of a sudden, now they have a huge influx of activity coming in. And what could that have done? Well, it could have actually, you know, some companies might have had to bifurcate between the manufacturing functions, the logistics functions, and even the back office functions, and sort of readjust their resources accordingly, right? So now, China had increased level of manufacturing, they had to handle those logistics, but 
perhaps all the back office functions and activities were sufficiently able to be handled by people who are working remotely in the UK office or in some of the other European offices. And so those people were then tasked with the additional level of function to perform you know, billing and collection type of activities, various administrative activities, IT help desk support activities, all in support of the China operation, right? So right. this is, these are the types of scenarios, or that's one of the types of scenarios I can imagine why a company would need to make sure that they're building out their functional analysis properly. Of course. And why are comparability analyses going to be more complicated for fiscal year 2020 versus other years? So I definitely think that the pandemic creates a lot of challenges from a comparability analysis because government responses mandated that companies respond in a certain way, right? And provided assistance in certain ways. And so that I think is one of the major factors that are going to impact the comparability of companies going forward. And the only way to control for that, at least on the surface right now, is to actually identify or try to identify localized comparables, right? And so if you can, for example, like if you're looking for comparables in China, as an example, and you can identify third-party companies operating similarly in China, then that's great because then you've controlled for sort of those government mandates that were imposed on multinationals in terms of what they are allowed to do versus not allowed to do, right? Mm -hmm. And that's one way to control for it. But, you know, now I wouldn't necessarily compare China against Korea or Japan, right? right? Because all the responses were so different. And it's difficult to to be able to assess that and even try to quantify the impact of that, right? I mean, I'm sure there are ways to the, that we can figure out how to try to quantify the impact of, of COVID and many economists can do that. It just, that's, it just takes a lot more time effort and analysis to be able to do that properly. Right. We might need a bit more distance to really see that in, in 2020 uh, vision. No pun intended, which I know <laughs> is is probably pun many other places in, in the podcast world. But is comparability a particularly big concern for clients? I think that's one of the biggest concerns for clients. I think I think everyone understands and, and I'll tell you. There are companies still out there, I won't name names, that, <laughs> that still only do the benchmarking every few years. So I feel as if that is a problem because when, you know, normally companies that only benchmark perform their benchmarking activities every few years, they do that in anticipation that they're not going to see huge market fluctuations year over year, right? But this is an exception. This is a year that we should expect to see some huge deviations between the way that different types of companies responded and reacted, right? Right. Even within certain industry spaces, by the way, because remember from a transfer pricing perspective, we don't always control for the industry. We control for functions when we do this type of comparability analysis. And, but but this is, you know, it, when you think about the application of a profit-based analysis, industry is not as important. But I think that in this upcoming year, when we think about COVID and the impact on profitability across different industries, I think we may need to be a little bit more particular 
even when it comes to industries beyond functions, if we can, right? If our comparables allow us to do that. But this is where we we know that transfer pricing is a little bit more of an art than it is a science because mm. now you have to make the decision, okay, well, what's more important? Country comparability, industry comparability, right? Between mm. the two of those. Because right off the bat, I, I don't have a preference, Matt. Like I don't have right. a personal opinion on that yet. I think that's based on the facts and circumstances. I do think functional comparability still rules above all. And mm. then it's either going to be country and then perhaps industry. And, you know, that's my general thought on that. But I will tell you in some situations that may not necessarily be the case. But no matter how they're being compared, comparable companies are something that tax authorities are challenging more and more, correct? They do. They challenge that. It's it's an easy target, if you will, right? It's it's a very easy target to say, oh, this company doesn't match what your company does. Well, right. I, I almost dare to say that there's no perfect comparable out there. Almost every company, there's a reason that you can easily latch onto to say this company does not meet the requirements of comparability across all the different dimensions that we're looking at for transfer pricing purposes. I would say that's probably true, right? No right. perfect comparable. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. And just to shake things up, while we focus on comparability analyses, we're going to make those two words, comparability and analyses, our final two CPE code words for today's episode. Again, those are our final two CPE code words for today's episode, comparability analyses. Mimi, just diving right in here, what about comparability analyses? It can already prove to be a challenge without a pandemic. Tell us about the strategies you recommend for handling this? So when you think about performing a, a comparability analysis, right, as, as I was just indicating, Matt, there's no perfect comparable. But as a practitioner, as someone who's putting together this benchmarking analysis, you should be creating a consistent narrative, right? And, and that, I think, it becomes that much more important because you don't want your selection of comparables to look like it's scatterbrained. Oh, this comparable I picked. Yeah, that, that looks good. Or, or that looks good. Like if we're talking about 10 comparability factors, or really, I guess it's nine, but nine comparability factors and looking at all the dimensions across those nine comparability factors, if I'm going to accept comparables and based on my review, it looks like I can get to about, I can try to control about, you know, six or seven of those nine comparability factors, right? then I'm going to want to right. apply that, the, the consistently apply those six or seven 
characteristics across my comparables and not change that. And all of a sudden, you right. know, get it, accept another comparable that meets six criteria, but six different criteria than my originals. So let me put that in real context, okay? Because that sounds a little bit confusing. I think one of the easiest factors, once again, is, is country comparability, right, Matt? If I looked at the universe of Australian comps, okay, and I'm looking for distributors of coffee, let's just use coffee. <laughs> Better than blue pens. It's a coffee day. It's, it's a, a Monday. It's a coffee day. That's right. <laughs> so, so if I'm looking for distributors of coffee and I find, you know, Australian comps and I'm, I'm trying to control for Australia, like the country. And I find, okay, distributors of, of beverages. And I'm like, oh yeah, beverages. I'm good with that. I think beverages make sense. And so I find, you know, several Australian beverage distributors. Okay. But then for some reason in my process of due diligence, I come across a company that is, happens to be a distributor of coffee right? But let's say they operate in Malaysia. I can't do that, right? It looks really good. And it, it's comparable across all these other facets. And it's probably even more comparable from a product perspective than my beverage distributors. But I have consistently been trying to control for the country of operation. And so I cannot just throw that back into the mix because then mm. it casts doubt onto my entire selection process. And I think it creates an opportunity for tax authorities to potentially challenge the selection of comparables, right? So that's, that's one thing I, I definitely think is, is something to keep in mind, creating a consistent mindset. I also think it's really important to continue to actually do benchmarks from scratch, like fresh, right? And not just do financial data refreshes of the previously accepted comps. Why? Well, when you do that, you're introducing bias to your comp set. Like, sure, that was the best set of comparables for that particular year. But now, you know, every year when I've seen that approach, and I've been on both sides, I've been on the side of preparing that type of analysis for companies, as well as utilizing that type of analysis as an industry professional. And on both sides, I've always noticed that year over year, the data shrinks. The data set shrinks because I, if I started with 10 really good comparables in year one, next year, I might have lost two of them because of some reason or another, in one situation, they might have merged with other companies. And you see this a lot, right? That companies that merge or companies that didn't survive and they're no longer going concerned. So you, you see the list of potentially comparable companies dwindle. And by the time it's the third year, there's less than four comparables and you can't really create a robust arm's length range with that, right? And then you've missed out on all these other companies out there who really have entered the market during this time or, or perhaps built up enough economies of scale to be another player within this comparable search, be it within your benchmarking analysis, by not doing that, you've sort of skewed your range, right? To only these mature companies who have been perhaps impacted by or benefited in some ways by barriers to entry. But I think at the end of the day, when you don't have enough observations 
there's just a lot more volatility and there's a lot more bias introduced in the actual arm's length range. And you just don't know what the tax authorities are going to come up with because when they audit you, they're going to do this benchmarking based on the time of audit, right? They're going to have that complete set of information to begin with. Just to recap your your last answer there, Mimi, it comes down to an issue of timing in that for comparability analysis, doing fresh benchmarking or relying on benchmarking from fiscal year 2020 or too close to the pandemic risks kind of bringing a knife to a gunfight when you have the tax authorities three years from now being armed to the teeth with analyses going back three years, et cetera. And without fresh benchmarking in that situation, you won't be comparing the same data. It's just the availability of information. So let's just say right. companies who have fiscal year ends in December, their data doesn't become available until at a minimum. I mean, it's when do companies report their financials for the fiscal year ended in December of 2020? Earliest is probably April when, when right. annual reports become available and things of that nature. And then the data providers then have to take that information and it consume it into their databases that then gets distributed down to the users as early as potentially of June 2021, right? So timing becomes an issue in that particular case. But I think the more important point here is to articulate that when a company does not do fresh benchmarking every year, they're putting themselves at risk because when a tax authority audits them, they're going to audit them using the best data available at that time for that particular time period. And taxpayers won't know that if all they're doing are financial data refreshes. You mentioned supporting documentation will be important. Can you tell us how? I think supporting documentation includes a lot of different things. For example, the qualitative analysis related to how the pandemic has impacted their particular business or industry specifically, right? Any sort of back of the envelope or application of a different type of method, corroborative methods. Perhaps a company historically had relied on a CUP method, but because, by the way, CUP, comparable uncontrolled price, yes, right? Yes. <laughs> but because of the pandemic, many of the buyers had to renegotiate the contracts, putting downward pressure and the actual market prices that were being charged. And so in that particular case, the cup data is going to perhaps not align with the intercompany pricing data because, well, intercompany prices were perhaps not revisited as quickly. Okay. So, so because of that, perhaps in a cooperative profit-based analysis might be applicable in this case to say, you know, even though the cup data in this particular case doesn't match, there is still justification that these prices should be considered arm's length. Last but not least, another way to think about this, or another type of corroborative analysis or supplemental analysis is to even look at what happened during the previous recessionary period. Right. The current pandemic period versus previous recessionary periods. Are we seeing similar trends? Are we seeing dramatic differences? I do think that right now we are seeing similar trends in that. So being able to justify arms length pricing based on historical periods as well as the current periods might also be a good way to help bolster the taxpayers' documentation and analyses. Now, how has COVID-19 paved the way for new approaches to common transfer pricing practices? So I do think that 
it, it really has highlighted how important, by the way, it, it probably should if it hasn't to some companies, it should highlight the importance of having robust documentation initially and then making sure that that documentation gets updated in the face of a disaster, right? It's all about having your story or being able to control your story and understanding what the implications are. And I, I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, transfer pricing professionals around the world can, can agree with me on this point is when you do a functional analysis, right? And when you're trying to understand risk profiles of a company, sometimes you ask, what is the worst case scenario? What happens under that worst case scenario? Who bears that ultimate risk? Like, for example, inventory risk. Let's say one of the companies holds all the inventory in a warehouse. And the question we sometimes will ask is, what if that warehouse burns down? Who bears the risk of loss associated with all that inventory? And the taxpayer practical response is always, well, you know, the, I think it's uh, the insurance company will pay for the warehouse and who bears the cost of the insurance? Who pays that bill, right? And so it's never 100% black and white. And then we say, okay, well, what does the contract say? Is that explicitly outlined in the contractual terms between those related parties? And those are the types of situations that people need to be mindful about. That's why documentation and having that robust documentation and having the contracts in place become that much more important because we have all now seen one of these worst case disaster scenarios. And so it triggers all those excessive clauses, right? And so in that particular case, that has direct implications and impact to the transfer pricing framework. And so I think people can now appreciate the role that documentation plays. And by the way, people who don't appreciate it right now, I will definitely tell you within the next two years, when people, when the tax authorities start auditing this year, they're like, what happened then? What happened in that particular situation? Nobody's going to remember, right? Like people have very short-term memories. And so you need to be more proactive about that and have that documentation in place because, you know, you don't know where the people are going to be. I, I can only imagine when the economy gets better, people start migrating between jobs. It kind of happens all around the world. Documentation will always be really, really important in order for the multinational to be able to control its story and understand and articulate qualitatively, the evolution of its transfer pricing framework and policy, right? Not to mention technology. I cannot stress that (laughs) enough, right? I mean, you know, technology, it helps you just keep up to date. Changes in the regulatory environment are constant. And I can't tell you how difficult it is to be able to remember every different tax authorities' preferences as it pertains to the economic analysis, as an example. While many countries out there apply the interquartile range, which goes from the 25th percentile to the 75th percentile, and we know India is, is an exception to the rule, Vietnam recently changed its range requirements from 25th to 75th to 35th percentile to 75th percentile. And, and that's an interesting change because all of a sudden, 
they've basically increased their minimum threshold to now be 35% of the arm's length range versus 25% of the arm's length range. These are the types of things that create complexity when you're trying to do your local documentation for Vietnam versus the US versus the UK. Remembering all those different range requirements alone is is difficult for one person unless this is your full-time job, right? Right, 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 of course. So COVID-19 has essentially enforced the transfer pricing practices that MEs should have already established. That's that's correct. I think it just highlighted the the greater need for it, right? The greater need to have your doc mm. your positions documented so that you can respond accordingly. Having supplemental analyses in place to create a defensible position by the time, I would say, if and when they finally come to audit you. I think it's also really important to note that understanding, you know, how to tell your story on a consistent basis becomes that much more important as we know that many jurisdictions are conducting joint audits. We know that tax authorities are sharing information and that they're all on the same page ultimately, right? And having robust documentation in place to begin with is really important in terms of making sure that your business can respond accordingly, right? So we talked about that cup analysis for a second where, you know, a company might have relied on internal cups to be able to price their intercompany transactions. And those third-party cups probably, I will broadly make this assumption, they probably, those prices were probably adjusted. But in many situations, the intercompany prices were not. Why? Because people don't really think that the intercompany prices are as important as the third party prices, right? Because it's not dollars out of the pocket. It's dollars between the left pocket and the right pocket. And so multinationals may not have responded properly and, and thought about those prices on a secondary basis. But, but this is why it's that much more important to make sure that Intercompany transactions are also treated at arm's length as if they were third parties and that the transfer pricing documentation holistically tells the story of the entire business. And your transfer pricing policy ultimately has to agree with the business realities as well as the shifts in the business realities over the past year. And then don't forget, I mean, COVID really is going to only highlight the need for more country-specific documentation because of the fact that it has impacted every jurisdiction differently. And what do you want readers to take away from your article? I think at the end of the day, I just want readers to understand the importance of documentation, right? It's not, it should no longer be an afterthought. It's, it's not something that is necessarily, you know, it's not a nice to have anymore. Documentation is really important to ensure that you as a taxpayer can demonstrate that your intercompany transactions were conducted in accordance with the arm's length principle, right? It is very important to understand that the transfer pricing environment in and of itself hasn't changed. The application of the arm's length principle hasn't changed. It's purely that the market conditions have changed, right? And that's, that's really what it boils down to at the end of the day. As a taxpayer, you need to demonstrate 
good practices to make it clear that you are actually being a, a compliant taxpaying citizen. And I think this is an important point to take away because many of the different tax authorities have made it very clear that they want taxpayers, especially in light of economic turmoil and or recessionary periods, they want to make sure that taxpayers have the right level of tax morality or tax duty. And so they don't want to see taxpayers shirk their responsibilities associated with the compliance requirements, right? Not only has this been a requirement pre-pandemic, this is an ongoing requirement post-pandemic in perpetuity, really, right? It's not going away anytime soon. And I think tax authorities want to make sure that taxpayers understand that. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing, software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You you know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. Welcome back, everyone. We're still here with Mimi Song with another rapid fire round of questions we like to call what we want to know not Mimi's first won't be Mimi's last of course but taking it from the top and taking inspiration from your article in Treasury and Risk what is something you'll always treasure and what has been your life's greatest risk man these are tough questions guys you guys are really, <laughs> you're getting, yeah, deep, getting deep you know <laughs> I, what will I always treasure I will I will always treasure the first moments when I uh, I met my children or when they were first born. I think that, that that moment as a human was just incredible. Sorry, that was like really deep though, right? <laughs> yeah. No, but it makes perfect sense. Thank like you. Your answer. And what has been your greatest risk? So let's see. I I feel like my greatest risk, I mean, I've never done something I'm going to go physical risk here, okay? So I'm going to say my greatest risk was going bungee jumping down in Acapulco, Mexico <laughs> when I was in college. And they don't even tie the rope around your ankle. I'm telling you, it was, it's, they, they literally just put some towels around your ankle and then like put some cords. And I remember thinking like, yeah. where's the snap, right? Like, <laughs> Why does this not feel very tight? So I'm, I'm glad I survived. It was, it was fine. And what is something that excites you about starting your work day? I feel like when we are able to communicate with doubters, right? So, so I'll tell you, in the tax community, 
many people are, if you're not big four, they have a lot of doubts. Who are you? Cross-border solutions. And, and I actually right. think that's a really exciting part of my workday, which is to be able to speak with these people who don't believe you have technology that can help and being able to highlight and articulate exactly how it can help and for them to see the light and be like, wow, that actually makes sense, right? Of course. And what's something you realized you'd taken for granted from pre-pandemic times? Oh, that, that, this is easy. Dinner at home. And I've, yeah. I, I realized this is because, so my children and I sometimes communicate on WhatsApp. And so and my daughter just went through the history of some of the messages. And it was like the, the, the messages pre-pandemic, it was always her saying, well, uh, mom, what time are you coming home for dinner? And I'd be like, oh, I'm still working. And that was, it was like 10 messages in a row. And I was like, man, I'm, I was never home for dinner. And she said that. She was like, you never came home for dinner. So I'll make this really fast. But if you check out the Obama Springsteen podcast, they talk all about his insistence of eating at 6.30 every night and how that was the backbone of the White House schedule. That's amazing. Because he insi- yeah, yeah, it's really, really, I highly recommend it as a parent. They really go into some some interesting stuff. Who is your favorite Disney villain and why? I don't know the answer to that question. I, I mean, mm. probably Captain Hook. Wait, no, the, oh, he's not Disney. Good. Is he? Is yeah. he Disney? Okay. Well, I mean, Peter Pan is a Disney movie, so he's in the canon. Yeah, yeah, you could say Captain Hook. I like it. Go. Yeah, for it. I think Captain Hook, and I, <laughs> I kind of feel like that might be the case, just because. I don't know. I feel like he was misinterpreted in some ways. <laughs> I, I feel like you, you cross the threshold into adulthood and everything about Captain Hook yeah. changes. Yes. Uh, you know, you realize, no, he is just it, like, you know, he's a Peter Pan if Peter Pan grows up. If he grows the, up, right. right. He's just, he's the adult. Yeah, anyway, yeah. he's misinterpreted. And, and then all, all the ways those little decorations from childhood that seem so innocent end up, end up morphing. How has your transfer pricing career continued to challenge you? I never realized transfer pricing would be as exciting as it is today. And so the constant changes and debates in the regulatory environment and the application to different industries and the evolution of different business models, those are all the amazing challenges that I see every day. And I feel very fortunate to have picked this as a career trajectory. So I'm excited about what I've been doing and and where I see this, this career going. I do too. I like being here. It's nice. We want to thank and congratulate Mimi Song for her article in Treasury and Risk. Again, that's transfer pricing documentation for 2021. We want to thank everyone at home for tuning in. Don't forget to check out the entire suite of podcasts from Cross Border Solutions on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. They let some guy named Matt DeMello host this show and do audio editing together with Andrew O'Donnell. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. As we almost say every week, everyone, we're in the home stretch. Stay safe, wear a mask, and we'll catch you next time.